3: Hi there, you're listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences, featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. When NPR developed the Code Switch project, it wanted to shake up public media's approach to stories about race, ethnicity and culture. A style that was usually devoid of humanity, often humorless, and that lost the meaning of how those topics play out in our everyday lives. Their first step was creating a diverse pool of talented reporters. They followed that up by developing a fresh method for finding and telling these stories on the radio. At the 2014 Third Coast Conference, code switch reporter Shereen Marisol Miragi shared the team's best tactics for covering race and culture. Here is audio code switching tackling race on the radio. Thank you.
4: Hello, is this thing on? Um, hey, so I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji. I work for the Code Switch team. I'm a reporter, uh, but I was a producer for years and years, for uh, more than a decade. So behind the scenes, I actually was a field producer for Alex Chadwick, and he taught me everything I know. Um, and he's an audience, so... Thank you, Alex. Um, I, the first thing I want to ask is why, what brought you to this workshop? What is it that you want to learn? I may or may not address any of it. Anyone? <laughs> Does anyone? What made you curious about coming here? I don't really want to talk, so I'm putting it back. I oh, Okay.
2: <laughs> right. So you don't have to talk. I live in New Mexico. It's a minority-majority state, and I do public tele- tele- television and radio, and I just... I want to make sure that um, I am including the voices of the community in my coverage and um, just looking for more techniques on how to do that, because there's, I don't know what I don't know. Right. And so, yeah, that's
0: Okay, I think doing. I can
4: help
2: with that. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, I, I'm here because I, uh,
5: I want to I wanna hear what everyone has to say, because when I hear race talk about on um, public radio, I don't hear a lot of really good examples. So I'm really curious to hear what you have to say, but really what folks in here have to say too.
4: Mm. Well, I'm gonna play you some examples and I hope you like them. Um, That makes me nervous. Anyone else?
6: (laughs) Hi, Um, I'm interested in hearing race as like an integral part of a lot of stories in public radio and not just as like the diversity story or the race issue story or whatever. I want
7: want to see it in everything.
4: I do too, I agree with you 100%. Uh,
6: Hi. um, I work at a public radio station in Alaska, and I just started reporting on Native Alaskan and tribal issues, so a community I'm not a part of. And my question is, how do you build those connections if they take more time than you have for the story? Um, If your deadline is sooner than the time it would take to build a real connection with
4: somebody? That is the issue that I struggle with all the time, so I'm trying to figure that out. In the last two years of my reporting, um, I report often on communities that I am not a part of Um, and yeah that's been really hard because I'm also under deadline pressure and a lot of what I tried to do is talk to my editors about how if we're going to do this right we have to create relationships with communities that we have not served very well and we have to be patient in the creation of those relationships and I know that's probably not the answer that you want because you are on deadline and you're going to lose your job if you don't meet the deadline, but, but, but constantly talking to your editors about you know how we've really ignored vast communities in public radio and we, we need to rebuild those relationships. But anyway, I have a program and um, I'm really glad to hear that uh, you're here and you're curious. Um, my name is Shereen Marisol Miraji. I think I have the most syllables in my on-air sock of anyone in public radio. <laughs> so that's my claim to fame. I'm a new reporter. Um, I've uh, been kind of struggling, trying to get into reporting from producing and doing behind the scenes work. Um, I can safely say I'm the only Puerto Rican, Iranian journalist at NPR. I grew up in, I just want to give you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Sacramento, California, one of the most diverse counties in all of California. Came of age in Oakland, California. Any Bay Area represent, yeah, Town. Um, (laughs) Oakland, California. All right. Um, I was a Raza Studies major at San Francisco State University. Uh, That was an interdisciplinary major where you looked at the psychology, history, uh, sociology of Latinos living in the United States. And that was in the 90s. And one of my first uh, freelance stories was from the World Conference Against Racism, which happened in 2001. It was in South Africa, and I did stories for Latino USA. So I've been thinking about race and culture and demographic change for a really long time. And I think a lot of it is because I am a mixed person, and I always felt like I was on the margins of everything. I felt like a misfit, and that made me sort of curious about everyone. And I felt like I was... uh, always uncomfortable and didn't belong, and um, I think that really helps when you're reporting on race because you're always going to be uncomfortable. It's uh, sensitive. You're never going to do it right. Someone's going to be mad at you. Constantly get ready for it. And um, be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I feel like there are a lot of misfits who are drawn to storytelling, so you guys know what what that's like (laughs) (laughs) to be uncomfortable. Anyway, so... As I said, as you know, public radio hasn't done a great job of engaging communities of color, hence the need for Code Switch. And somebody mentioned that they want diversity in all stories and diverse voices in all stories, and I agree completely with that. Right now what we're doing at NPR is we have sort of a playground, a multi-platform playground called Code Switch, where we're trying to tell stories of communities of color in different ways and experiment with that. Um, We have three radio reporters, we have two digital first, or I call myself an audio first reporter because, you know, radio, I don't know, we do audio stuff and it lives everywhere. Um, But we have two digital first uh, journalists and they do a blog with us and um, we cross pollinate and we try and reach communities that are not listening to public radio that way. And um, we also now have an identity and culture unit at NPR called, uh, we call it ICU, because we're, we're helping the state that we're in. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very critical, we have to do something. Anyway, Michelle Martin's a part of that, and she's taking public radio out to communities and engaging communities on the ground. So we're doing two things. We've got Code Switch, and this is an experimental place, and sometimes we fail completely. And then we've got ICU, and Michelle Martin is out, and she's talking to people. Um, here's the thing. Outside of the public radio lover's bubble, and we all are lovers, are love public media, I'm assuming, um, NPR really is thought of as pretentious, elitist, boring audio wallpaper. Um, So I think that one way to combat that, an easy way to combat that, is to diversify story choice and diversify the characters that you have in your stories. It makes your stories pop out of the radio. It's such an easy way to make good audio stories is to not go to the same people all the time. This is really basic information, but for some reason we don't do it most of the time because we are on deadline and we don't have the time to do it, Um, but, but you can. So you know this, I'm gonna say it again, we have to diversify to survive. Public media is not hitting these communities. Demographics are changing, we're getting browner. That's the reality, but don't do it because you have to. Don't do it because NPR producers are, want you to do this now, by the way, it's a mandated NPR, you have to have diverse voices, this is a mandate, so if you're going to freelance for us, and you're going to talk to an expert, they should be a brown expert, or an expert from the middle of the country, or not um, an educated white guy from the coasts, because that's who we always talk to, so don't do it because you have to, because you do have to, but do it because it makes your stories better, it makes them sound unexpected, it makes them pop out of the radio, it makes them sing, so there are various ways to do that, and I'm going to talk about four. I actually, um, when I was asked to do this talk, I they were like, so tell us how you do the, this. How do you find these stories? And I had never thought about how I find these stories. I kind of just live in this world, and they come to me, and I think that's interesting, and I throw it out at an editorial meeting. But as I was looking at our content, I realized that we do have stories, and we... Segment them, we find them in four different ways, I think, often. So we look at statistics and demographics and we find the human story behind that. We look at stereotypes and preconceived notions of different cultures and we go towards the stereotype and we either myth bust or we try to find why these stereotypes exist. Um, we look at traditions in com- certain communities and we pull back the curtain and we say, what, what. Where did this tradition come from? What does it mean? What are the tensions that are around this tradition? And then we look at trends, pop culture trends, Twitter trends, uh, the low hanging fruit is the trending hashtag um, on black Twitter or Latino Twitter. So those are the four things we do. It's statistics, stereotypes, traditions, and trends. And um, I will talk about how we do that. Any questions? Anybody want to break it up? How am I doing? never done one of these before ay <laughs> oh, dios mío okay uh all right so the first thing i said was in big bold letters don't sleep on the census data is your friend now we have to do news just like anybody else and our mandate is when we're covering breaking news make sure we look at diverse communities and how they're affected by that news so here's an example. Latinos, new immigrants, are living in unexpected areas outside of the coast and the southwest. One of those places is Oklahoma. And Hansi Lo Wong, who's a reporter for Code Switch, he uh, had to go uh, after the tornado, the Moore tornado. And He had to do a story that was diverse, and he was like, well, how do I do this? How do I figure this out? And so he looked at census data, and he found where new immigrant communities were living uh, in the areas around Oklahoma. And he found uh, Latino communities that did not have access to any emergency information in Spanish. So he did that story. It was a breaking news story, but it was also a diversity story and a race story, and he found that story by looking at census data before he got on the plane and left. So here's a little bit about, of that story. Hope, hopefully you can hear it.
8: For
3: Cruz, getting Spanish-speaking residents to plan for the next tornado tops this morning's agenda.
8: I come from Puerto Rico. Talk to me about hurricanes. I'm an expert. About tornadoes.
3: That was one part of Oklahoma life that took getting used to after Cruz moved here almost a decade ago. Recently, the local Red Cross chapter hired two bilingual staffers to increase their Spanish language outreach. And Cruz says there's more work to do.
8: We have a lot of people that still, after a year of last tornado, still don't know what to do.
4: Okay, so there's an easy way to find a story and diversify the day's news. Um, And we did it looking at census and demographic data. Another way, uh, another piece of data we found, Gene Demby, who's the lead correspondent and blogger for Code Switch, he gets a lot of reports on the health of historically black colleges and universities and there are academics that are looking at these things and he was looking at one report and he was gonna blog about it. And we were all in a meeting and he said, you know, there's there's this stat in this report that's really interesting and I can't do anything about it in the blog, it just doesn't work. And we're like, oh, what is it? And he said, uh, there is a historically black college in Bluefield, West Virginia, that uh, is 90% white. So it was a historically black college uh, with mostly white people that went to it. And we were in the meeting, we were like, what? How is that possible? And um, so we knew immediately, okay, we've got a story that would make for a great radio story, but how do we tell the story? We tabled it for a while. We, I thought about like, how can I do this? I want to talk to alumni, but I want to be on campus. I want to talk to the new students there. And um, Karen Grigsby-Bates who's one of the correspondents that we work with, she was like, Shireen, what about homecoming? Maybe they have homecoming, and that's when alumni come back, and then there's new students there, and everyone participates in these homecoming activities. Now, I went to San Francisco State. We did not have a homecoming. It was a commuter school, so this was all very new to me. So I called up, and there's a head. of. They have a black alumni, only a black alumni association, even though the school had gotten whiter and whiter since the 70s. But I called them up and they said, yeah, some people actually do come back for homecoming. And I said, this is a great way to tell that story based on that piece of data, that this historically black college was 90% white and here's a little bit about I'd like to introduce you to a few proud members of Bluefield State College's All Black Alumni Association.
2: I am Mildred Washington, I was Mildred Harrison on campus from 1951 until 55.
7: Okay, it's Lois Manns, graduated in 1969. People from Bluefield, you're there in the forties and fifties, this is go-go.
4: Eighty-three-year-old Gloria Brown, or
7: Go-Go, class of 51, can't believe how few black students there are. You could shoot one of them AK-47s and not touch anything that looked like us. My room was right through those trees, the last grade, in the basement. Lois Manns,
4: class of 69, points to the school of business, which
7: used to be the girls' dorms. Every time I come over, somebody says, oh, you need to come over and see it. I said, no, absolutely not. It is just too painful. When I think about what was and what is now, I I don't want to revisit. The dorms are gone, closed down decades ago.
4: Same with the football program. Homecoming's just not the same, says Lois's brother Russell Manns, class of 64.
1: You couldn't move on this campus from Wednesday through Saturday on this campus with people coming back to be here for all the
3: festivities. So it was just enjoyable.
4: The Bluefield State the man's remember had a lively homecoming, dorms, a football team. But what they miss most is a campus full of students who looked like them.
3: It was created uh, basically for the
1: uh, black population of southern West Virginia to give them an opportunity to get an education.
4: The campus is carved into a hilltop overlooking train tracks that separate the white part of Bluefield from the black part. But by the 50s, the college was attracting African-American students from all over the country because it was well known for training excellent teachers. Over the course of a half a century, all that changed. Okay, so, and then the story goes on to tell you how that all changed. But that's an example of us taking a piece of data and creating a story around it. So when Ferguson is not in the headlines, there's ways that you can find race stories, very simply. Um, Another thing, oh, here's another thing about data. There are times, especially when it comes to race stories, there are times when an editor will say, that's a statistic that I've heard a million times before. Um, here's when I've gotten pushed back on uh, stories about mass incarceration and how it affects the African-American community. Um, there, I've been told, we've heard that story. That story's old. Um, it, it may be old and we may have heard that story, but it's still a story, and it's one of the most important race stories of our time in my personal opinion. So what I've had to do um, as a reporter is figure out, okay, well, what's a new piece of data that they don't know or what's an interesting way to tell this story that isn't the same way they think we've been telling it since 1995? And um, because this was a story that was, I'm really passionate about, I actually found a, a book. I mean, so, so a lot of this comes from, like, research and books and whatever. I found a book called Children of the Prison Boom, Mass Incarceration and Its Effects on Kids. And uh, there was a stat in this book that just blew my mind. And I was like, oh, I can take this back to an editor and maybe build something, build a case around it. And the stat was one in four African-American children between birth and 14 years of age will have their father incarcerated um, between birth and 14, one in four African-American children. And I thought that is a story, we could do something with that story on public radio. Somehow we could tell that story. And I'm not gonna play it for you. You guys can look at it online because it's long and kind of emotional. But what I did was I found a summer camp that takes kids uh, to visit their fathers in maximum security state prison. And I went through the security clearances and uh, they didn't tell me I could actually go into the prison until a week before and had done it months before. And I was like, this is the way to tell the story. I think that we can do this. And I went and I got the clearance and my editor was like, go do it. I camped with the kids and I built rapport with them. And then we all went to the prison together and hung out with their dads. And it became a story that, uh, it, I think it did really well, and it talked about something that editors will say. Been there, done that. We've heard that story. Anyway, so statistics. That's a great way to hit on find new race stories. Um, another way to do it is stereotypes. So Code Switch doesn't like to do earnest race reporting. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Earnest public radio race reporting. Uh, We like to switch it up and, I don't know, find some humor in things. Can you describe that? The earnest reporting on race? Okay, well, um, we go to a community that's socioeconomically disadvantaged, and we always talk to the same poor person um, and use, like, a bite from their life to illustrate something that Um, an expert from a university has written a book about. Um, I think that's one way that public radio doesn't do it well. So we're like, oh, this expert said this. Let me go find um, a a bite from one human being who can illustrate exactly what this expert says instead of having the community themselves who are the experts living living the, the life tell their own stories. And you know what, when people are living as they are they're not like all like oh my life is so hard you know what I mean they're living their life and they're being people and they're being funny and they're being saying that you can shoot an AK-47 and not touch anything that looks like us like I feel like we miss that in the way we report on race because we don't spend enough time with um those communities so I'm gonna leave it at that well what's a good what's a good earnest I don't want to call anyone out I thought about this like finding something, but then I was like, oh, I don't want to call out any of my colleagues. Um, Let me think about that. I'll answer that at the end. (laughs) Um, Okay, so another thing we do is stereotypes. Hold on, I need my notes because I'm really nervous. How's everybody doing? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Throw your hands in the air. Wave them like you just don't care. Let's talk about race, baby. Where are my notes? Is this thing being recorded? That's not good. Okay, stereotypes. Here we go. All right, so what we do in our code switch meetings is we bring up funny things that happen, or not funny things that happen, and then we go, why is that a thing? And we do this often. So here's an example. Uh, There was a story in New York and it happened in a Whole Foods and I'm not sure if you've heard this but it, a Chinese man was ordering a sandwich the person behind the counter at Whole Foods said this is for the ching chong Okay that's a story and we were like Matt Thompson was like what do we do with this like how do we do this and we were like well I mean what do we talk to Whole Foods and get a quote from them I I don't know I don't know what we can do with this and so we kind of mulled it over, and then, and then someone was like, ching chong? Like, what? Like, how did that become the go-to slur for Chinese people? Like, what? what? And, um, and someone was like, yeah, where did that come from? So we talked about that, and that became a blog post, and Kat Chow did it, but as we were having this conversation... Uh, Kat actually said, and that, and that riff, dun 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 like why is that, why when you hear that you think of all things Asian? Like what is that about? And, um, you know, we, we let that sit on the shelf for a minute and then Kat kind of Googled it and, and looked into it and that became a radio story. So I'm going to play that.
0: Okay, let's take this nine note tune. <laughs> I'm Chinese American and I've heard it a lot. Especially when I was a kid. Here it is in the movie The Aristocats, which I watched over and over when I was little. That's a Siamese cat who's using chopsticks to bang out the tune on a piano while he sings. He's got buck teeth and a triangle hat. And back in the 70s, when everybody was in love with Bruce Lee, it was in the hit song Kung Fu Fighting. Oh, oh, oh. We even heard the riff in the video game Super Mario Land. It comes on when you reach a mystical Asian kingdom. But where does that association come from? Expert after expert couldn't tell me for sure. And then I found this guy. Hello. He's a Swedish web designer, and he was obsessed with the riff.
4: All right, so this is what I mean by not earnest reporting on race. I. Uh, I love that piece. I love that she went there. It was great radio sound because there was just so much to use and um, you should listen to the rest of it online and learn more. Uh, So that's what we do. We go towards the stereotype. We ask, why does it happen? Why does it exist? And I think for some reason, we're allowed to be curious about everything but race, you know, where it's just very, it's uncomfortable, it's politically incorrect, we were not allowed to ask these questions that are in our heads, and at Code Switch we decided, no, we're going to go there, we're going to ask these questions, we're going to do it responsibly and respectfully, but we're going to do it, so another way we did that was uh, during the Zimmerman trial, I don't know if you remember the late Trayvon Martins An ex-girlfriend, she was on on the stand. Her name was Rachel Jantal. Uh, There was a lot of Twitter vitriol about her and um, her testimony. And it ranged from what she looked like to how she spoke. And we talked a lot about how, you know, how do we do this and how do we... Do a story about this and then it kind of and we did do a story about the twitter vitriol and that lived on the blog i did that but i wanted to do something else about black vernacular and um, code switching and uh it turned into a story about why is "ax" um the use of the term "ax"? is that is that wrong is that slang what is that and it was another one of these where does that come from? And so they said, Shireen, do, do a story about it. Make it three and a half minutes and fun. <laughs> and so, um, so that's what we did. We, I did a story about ask as axe. Um, and here we go.
9: Ask. It's not uncommon to hear that word pronounced axe. To many, that's a mispronunciation. But as NPR's Shireen Marisol Meraji reports, axe is as old as English itself.
4: Axe has gotten a bad rap. If you say axe, it's often assumed you're poor, you're black, you're uneducated. New York City's first African-American schools chancellor put the word on his list of speech demons to be eradicated.
10: It's the most noticeable term in African-Americanisms.
4: That's Gerard McClendon, education professor and the author of
10: Axe or Ask, The African-American Guide to Better English.
4: McClendon says his parents taught him there's a time and a place to use Axe because they were well aware of its stigma.
10: When you're with your little friends, you can speak any way you want to speak, all right? But the minute you get in a spelling bee or in a job interview, switch it up quick. I've taught my children to do that as well.
1: If it happens four times in a sentence, you probably going to get two Axes, mm-hmm. two Asks
4: sketch comedy duo Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele joke that because they're mixed race they're constantly switching back and forth from axe to ask
1: yeah if, 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 when, a, when a cop comes up to you you definitely of throw asks. out asks if you got four asks in that sentence then yeah you're gonna go four and only ask the away officer ask away whatever you want to ask me I'm more than happy to answer mm-hmm. officer is that the only question you wanted to ask us I'm Jesse Scheidlauer. I'm the president of the American Dialect Society. I believe I'm here to talk about the historical pronunciation of axe for ask.
4: Scheidlauer says axe has been used since the 8th century and derives from the Old English verb axion.
1: The, The people who use the axe pronunciation are using the pronunciation that has been handed down in an unbroken form for a thousand years. It is not a new thing. It is not a mistake. It is a regular feature of
11: English.
4: So that was part of the Ask, ask story. So we went there, and uh, I was a little nervous to go, oh, can you hear me? Okay, I just had an out-of-body experience. I didn't know where I was for a second. Ah! I was looking at you with the glasses, and I was like, where am I? Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I was nervous to do that, but I talked to a ton of linguists. I talked to linguists. You couldn't tell from that three-and-a-half-minute piece, but I talked to linguists at Stanford, linguists in England. I read uh, books about black vernacular. You know, the key, It's all fun and good, but um, I did a lot of uh, back research work to make that story uh, okay for the radio, and I knew that we would get a lot of pushback on it, which we did online. You can look it up. There's like 300-and-something comments to the story. But we weren't afraid, and we went there. And All all Things Considered went there, which is, I'm totally surprised. It never did happen again with, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I actually don't work for NPR anymore after that. Okay, so yes, so we got statistics and demographics. Great way to find stories. Another way is stereotypes, preconceived ideas. Go there, ask questions, be curious. It's okay. Other people want to know too. Um, And then finally, um, I think trends are a really great way to find stories about uh, communities of color and what's going on with young brown people and what they're doing. And an easy, low-hanging fruit way of doing that is uh, we do a lot of trending hashtags and, hey, what's that, what's that about? What's going on there? And, um, you know, I like to go – a friend of mine actually teaches at a high school – It's 98% Latino, and I come for career day, and nobody comes to my talk because they're like, what, public radio reporter? I was like, next time I have to somehow explain what I do in a different way because nobody knows what this is and nobody cares. But um, I kind of can convince people to come into my talk, and then later I pick their brain about what is hit? What are you guys doing? What are you guys reading? What are you guys listening to? I knew about Iggy Azalea way before Iggy Azalea, you know? So I suggest you know go and, and go to the high schools that are getting browner uh, and talk to kids and talk to them about what they're doing and what they're into. You'll find great stories. I used to work with youth radio, and we, we did a um, whoop, whoop, and we did a whole thing when I was at Day to Day called What's the New What? And it was all youth trends and what, what kids in Oakland were doing and getting into, and that would have been great fodder um, for stories uh, for Code Switch. So I'm going to play an example of a story that was a trend story. It was done by Sam Sanders. The way the story came about was because Moscato was being uh, mentioned in a lot of hip-hop songs, and there were ads for Moscato, which is a sweet wine, in um, Latino and African-American communities in L.A., and he was just like, what is this with Moscato? Um, And he did a story about it. Trend story.
2: Moscato has been around for hundreds of years, but recently it's become one of the fastest-growing wines in America. Through hip-hop, Moscato has embedded itself in pop culture. As NPR's Sam Sanders explains, Moscato is more than just a fad; it's transforming the wine market.
10: Rapper Lil Kim is believed to have first rapped about it in 2005. Still
8: over in Brazil, sipping Moscato. You must have so I'ma take you back to the block,
10: yo But Drake gets most of the credit for putting Moscato on the map in this song from a 2009 mixtape.
12: It's a celebration. Clap, clap, bravo. Lobster and shrimp and a glass of Moscato. For the
10: After that, it became a hip-hop staple. Name dropped everywhere. Moscato even found its way into the world of reality TV. Here's Real Housewife of Atlanta, Nene Leakes, telling Anderson Cooper all about her Moscato. I
6: have my own Moscato called Miss Moscato. Wait, you
10: have your and own know, brand of wine? No. Yes, I do. And I know Moscato's you know you not high-end. It's a relatively cheap white wine made from the Muscat grape. Really sweet, low alcohol content. But over the last few years, hip-hop culture, pop culture, have made Moscato something more. Cool, celebratory, and very popular. Moscato has become a thing.
4: So, Moscato, trends. Uh, that's great fodder for good stories about diverse communities and that are not boring. And um, I think, I don't know, did you think, what did you think? Were those stories interesting? Did they sound like public radio Typical? meh, I mean, you know, we still have to like, make the ATC producer happy.
2: I have a question, so, you know, I mean, we're all laughing at, you know, the host intro, like, how do you <laughs> make it not sound, cause sometimes, it, then it just makes like, what's a great topic and a great story, the frame, like, just makes it sound, like, bad. Like, yes you know, and yeah. and, like you're just like so it's almost like we need to play with form not just content definitely and, like to me i was like, Podcast should, like should have a yeah i don't know <laughs> i mean <laughs> but do you have any recommendations for that like i feel like maybe we just need to also not just like open up form like really have a, a discussion about like breaking up breaking apart i
4: agree with you 100 percent. i mean i did a story when nate dog died and um and the introduction was like, Nate dog, is it? And I was just like, ah. I, th- I I agree. I wish you could say that on mic, actually, and that was recorded, because I think there's only so much we can do um, pushing the envelope without our own podcast when our stories have to live on the news magazines, and they are very rigid in the way that they do things. Right, Alex? <laughs> um. I, I agree, and and yes, and, and also when I'm playing these stories for kids, I usually cut off the intros, and I start with where the piece starts, because I know immediately it's going to be like, what is this, this is not for me, this doesn't speak for me, so I agree, and I think we should switch up how we intro these stories. I mean, Morning Edition is really working with, they're really trying to do these, They talk to each other and then they throw some tape in there and they get you excited in a way that's less uh, stodgy. But, yeah, that's something that we run up against. Another thing we run up against is fear. I I did a piece, uh, Pizza Patron. It was a trend piece. Uh, They're a pizza chain out of Dallas and they market to new immigrants from Mexico. And they had a marketing campaign uh, for the pizza chingona. And, um, so like the badass pizza, you know, and I was like, this is awesome. Like, we have to do this. We have to talk about chingona and like how this is a slang word and what does it mean. And, um, but see, it's from the root chingar. And so if you're not Mexican, it means to fuck. And then there was all this, can I say that on here? Beep. <laughs> So I did this whole piece, and I talked to um, Spanish language professors, and I talked to young people about, oh, man, Chingon, that is so cool. This is an awesome marketing campaign. And it ultimately it didn't, it didn't air. There was just too much. It, it was pushing the envelope too much. So we, yeah, we have to work within the framework we're given, and we try to push as much as we can. But I think the best way to bust out is to have our own podcast, and we have yet to do that. So any... They said, they were like, ah, we don't know, like FCC, they're going to fine us. This is a bad word. We think it's a bad word, but, (laughs) you know, and, um, and, you know, well, I'm like, who at the FCC is going to even hear that or get it? Do they have people who look for Spanish language swear words? And um, there just wasn't enough people to say that. I mean, this is also a push to diversify the newsroom. There weren't enough people to say, no, chingona, that's not... Yeah, but no, it's just a slang word, you know? It means badass, badass pizza. That is cool, you know? But we didn't have anybody to do that. Actually, our head of marketing is Mexican. She's from Mexico City. And she was like, damn, I wish I would have gotten involved in that conversation because I would have said this was a great story and we should have aired it. So we're still sort of pushing against that. And I think, yes, we... We have to do some, I don't know, let's diversify and youngify the hosts. (laughs) Oh, no, am I going to have a job after this? Uh, So I guess, yeah, so... When when you're looking for these stories, there are the obvious ones, the the Ferguson, which is a great story. Ferguson's a great story, um, but there are a lot of stories that are right there under our noses, and we don't do anything about them. I mean, San Gabriel Valley in LA is heavily, heavily Asian. Um, there are tons of great stories to be done out of that area, and we don't we don't touch it. I mean, and and wherever you live, it's the same thing. Go there get uncomfortable, don't talk to people that you always talk to all the time, don't always read The Economist or The New Yorker or whatever it is and listen to This American Life. They they do great stuff but you know get out of your comfort zone and and meet people who are different or if you don't meet people who are different at least talk to them on Twitter because they're there so you can tweet back and forth with them. Um, and get uncomfortable. I mean, that's the one thing that, if I can impart anything to you, is that this is, it, this work, you're never gonna make anyone happy, no one's gonna be happy. And um, so, you know, get ready to be comfortable being uncomfortable. More questions?
7: Yeah, yes. Why is there such an emphasis on youth and race? Like, only young people are engaged with this because I'm. You know, I'm engaged with it, and there are many people my age engaged with it,
4: so, you know, what the, what the heck? Okay, yeah, no, okay, I'm 37, first of all, I'm not young, um, but, <laughs> or I'm not millennial. Um, I think that the the youth and race aspect is just because public radio has done a terrible job of engaging young people so we're trying to figure out ways doing to engage a them. terrible job of
7: engaging people of color regardless of their right. age yeah and i think that you know it's kind of a, a to me it is a, um, a an abdication of responsibility to to just to, you know well we'll just deal with these younger ones because they're more malleable or they're more accessible in some re- way we only need 140 characters i mean right right dude well i, I mean I did, like,
4: in uh, oh, I didn't, did I talk about traditions? No, I didn't. I didn't. Okay. I'm sorry. This was one of the things that that was on my list, and I I veered away. Um, So we have statistics, we have stereotypes, we have trends, and we have traditions. And I I apologize. I totally omitted that because I got all excited when the Moscato and the hip-hop came on. But... um, One way that we tell stories on Code Switch is to talk about traditions. And it's a great way, and it's not just youth-oriented. And um, for example, I did a story about cundinas and tandas, which are a way that uh, Mexican immigrants, especially women, come together and they invest and they save money. And um, it was a tradition story, and I'm just gonna play that for you, so it's not just young. Here's how it works. 10 women get together and each agrees to give a hundred bucks every two weeks to the group's organizer. And one woman ends up with a whole pot at the end of the month, $2,000. Now this goes on for 10 months until everyone gets the pot. So eventually everyone pays in $2,000 and everyone gets $2,000. For Mexicans, this is called a cundina or tandas. That's Barb Mayo. She's participated in a number of these, cundinas or tandas, depending on where you're from in
0: Mexico. I worked with a bunch of Mexican women. They were like, hey Barb, do you want to do a tanda? And I'm Cuban. I was like, what is a tanda? And so then they explained it to me and I was like... That's great, yeah, because it's like a no-interest loan with your friends. Mayo
4: says she used her first payout for expensive dental work, and the peer pressure kept her honest. If she missed a payment, the consequence was letting down friends. A harsher penalty to her than a default notice from a bank. But Mayo says only the Latinas at her job
0: were into the idea. It was funny because we were with white people and, and the girl was like, all you're doing is giving money to other people but not collecting interest on it. And there's a risk, but all of us didn't see it that way.
4: There is a risk. Someone could be the first in the group to get the pot and never come back. The leader could skip town with all the cash. It happens. But Carlos Vélez-Ivañez, an anthropologist at Arizona State who wrote a book about tandas, he says that's pretty rare.
2: In the United States, there's such stress given to individuality
10: and to individuation and to individual success. Bottom line is trust. They can't believe people trust each other.
4: Vélez Ibañez says newly arrived Mexican immigrants have to trust each other for survival. Your neighbors, your co-workers, also your mechanics, seamstresses, babysitters, and interpreters. He says these social connections are critical, especially if you're undocumented and can't speak English. They're maintained primarily by women. And in the case of Atanda, or what he calls a rotating savings and credit association, your community is helping you save money or get a no interest loan.
10: When you participate in a a rotating savings and credit association, everybody already knows your name. Everybody knows what your social collateral is already, whether you're trustworthy or not.
8: Buenas noches. Mi nombre Redondo. de México. Salazar. Nicaragua. Gabriela Guerrero. la de México.
4: In San Francisco's Mission District, women are introducing themselves to a group they'll be participating with in a lending circle.
8: Hi, um, my name is Alicia Villanueva, and I am from Mexico, Mazatlán, Sinaloa.
4: This is Alicia Villanueva's sixth circle, organized by a nonprofit, the Mission Asset Fund. They're using the Tanda system, but reporting payments to credit agencies to help participants build good credit. There's also zero risk; someone will run off with your money. Nearly 70% of the people who participate are women, like Villanueva, looking to make a better life for their families.
8: When I arrive, I just start to, um, you know, cleaning houses and take care of the disabled.
4: But Villanueva really wanted to start her own business selling tamales. She did tandas back in Mexico. So when she saw a flyer for something similar run by the Mission Asset Fund, she traveled from two cities away to participate. Here's how she used her first $1,000 payout.
8: I remember what it was my car to the DMV registration. And then the rest of the money I invest on my business.
4: Villanueva went from selling her tamales door to door to a staff of seven women and a food cart. She's using this round of cash to buy flyers and signs to help advertise Alicia's Tamales Los Mayas.
8: So this one is going to support me and, can I say, catapult me to
4: play in the big leagues. <laughs> Villanueva says the big leagues for her means owning a restaurant she can pass down to her three kids.
0: When I was a kid in the neighborhoods in, in Central Orange County, the poor neighborhoods, this was a very popular way of getting a loan.
4: California State Senator Luke Correa calls Tandas an alternative to those payday lenders with out-of-control interest rates. Lenders, he says, you'll also find in poor neighborhoods like the ones he grew up in. So he proposed legislation that would exempt nonprofits like the Mission Asset Fund from having to get a lender's license. He says they're not lending the money. The participants are. And regulators should get out of the way.
0: I have to tell you the lesson for me as a chair of the Banking and Finance Committee in the California State Senate is to you know, open my eyes a little bit more and start looking at those areas where I think finance does not exist because that will be the place that I may find more solutions to our problems.
4: Correa says lending circles are responsible for supporting entrepreneurs and job creators like Alicia Villanueva. And he says no matter what you call them cundinas, lending circles, rotating savings and credit associations—they work, and it's time they're brought out of the shadows. Shereen Marisol Meraji, NPR News.
1: And you can see more interesting ways women are managing their money at our Tumblr. Yes. Search for
4: SheWorks Tumblr,
1: without the E. We hope you'll share financial.
4: Lessons. Um, I so I had to do some stories for the Man series. All Things Considered was doing a series about men. And they asked me to do a... St- <laughs> do I keep talking? I don't know. Um, and they asked me to do something about man artifacts and the things that make men feel like men. And I was like, oh, okay, how do I do this? And so I... But uh, everybody I talked to was different, different classes, different racial backgrounds, and from different parts of of the country. It was not the same man. It was it was an Asian man, an African American man, a white man. It was that's how I approach every story is that I want to bring America to those stories. That's me, but. Um, I think that we need all the reporters to do that.
9: How do pe- see? That's the thing. It's like on
4: TV, it's easy to see, right? Or like, I mean. Oh, yeah, how do you know? Because a race is sometimes visual, right? Uh-huh. Because it can be difficult, oh, you know, my. Like, yeah. But how do you do that in public radio, right? In terms of your language, like, how do, do the listener know that actually you have a diverse group of people that right. you're interviewing, and not just assuming they're all white men? Well, in that in that story, uh, I one of my characters had an Asian lifestyle magazine, so I was like, he has an Asian lifestyle magazine, and then he's from New York, so he has, like, a real, like, New York kind of situation, t- talking situation, but that's how I did. I subtly, I <laughs> was like, he, 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 you know, he runs an Asian lifestyle magazine. Um, that is hard. I mean, I think the way voices sound, that's a great point, and that is difficult, but, and we're trying to do that. But I think names, like I had to do another one for the man series on where have all the gentlemen gone. And so I, in order to diversify that story, I had a group of young people, uh, super diverse from the South Central Scholars. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the South Central Scholars and I'm going to talk to them. And and there were Latino, Filipino, African American. I was going to talk to them about um, being a gentleman and what does that mean in, in 2014. But it, I just thought... We need diverse voices and here is a group of people and we can talk to them. I just don't think that many radio producers think about that. I don't know, or think that way, but we need to. And there's tons of organizations to go to where we can find those voices. We're just not doing it.
3: And just poking in to let you know we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session.
4: Any other questions? I have a question. Yeah.
5: I cover an area I cover I've been covering Gary, Indiana for a long time. It's about eighty percent black African American. But I, I just cover the city. I don't cover it as a black city. city. It's just you have a black mayor, black police chief, and I feel uncomfortable sometimes exploiting that. I mean what do you so mean by explaining? Like, well, or like bringing it out in stories. I mean, when, oh, when it yeah, is yeah. It appropriate to, you're just covering the town. Right,
4: and I think that's totally right. That's how you should be doing it. You, don't, you shouldn't say, the black mayor of, you know, he's just the mayor. And, and I think you're doing the exact right thing. Um, I have been tasked with covering stories about race, so it's a, a little bit different. But in everyday stories, you're doing the exact white, right thing. a White thing. <laughs> right thing.
8: Um,
4: I don't know. This is a work in progress. We've been doing this for two years and, and I don't know if we're doing it right or we're doing it wrong or if we should be on the news magazines or if we should just be doing our own thing and trying to find our niche audience. Um, we're tr- we're, right now, we're throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what works.
11: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
5: You know, the comment that I had actually followed up right on that. I was thinking about um, one of the new voices I heard uh, early yesterday was saying, you know, when it comes to, you know, uh, underrepresented voices, there's always stories that are done about them, but not for them, you know? And and for me, the way it sounds is like it's a white reporter doing a story for a white audience. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting really frustrated with waiting, you know? When I first started coming to these things, you know, I'm fairly new in the game in public media. I'm I'm like, diversity, yes! And I'm like championing hard, super hard. Then I come to find out this conversation's been happening for decades. Exactly. And I'm like, Mm. why am I gonna wait for the system to accept me? Maybe it's time for us to just break off and be like, you know what? You don't want my audience? You don't want my work? I'm gonna go over (laughs) here and (laughs) say, this this is the time
6: for that? This is my question.
4: I'm, I'm still trying to work within the system. Uh, but I completely agree with you. We're not foreign correspondents, you know. Uh, you, you, these communities are actually going to hear the stories that we're airing. They're a part of the American fabric. I agree and then we've been that is how we've been covering the stories. That is the traditional public radio way. Do you when you heard those stories do you think it's a little different?
5: The story that you played? Yeah. Um, a little bit. Or I is
4: think, it yeah. No, tell me. Be critical. Like I like the,
5: Well, I mean, I think like like the it's hard because, like, the thing about the, the, these stories are, like, it's fraught on all sides, you know what I mean? Like, I'm hearing Moscato, I'm like, oh.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there was a lot of Moscato pushback story. about that.
5: Yeah? Right?
7: But I, also, I would say no. Yeah.
5: You said no. Go, go, I say say no. No.
7: Yeah. I don't hear a social justice element in any of those stories. I hear exposition. I hear presentation. I hear a little reportage. Um, I hear... Uh, Almost, I mean, when you, when you, the the lightness sometimes is uh, uh, almost self-loathing, in a, in a sense. I mean, this is something I have a harsh critique of it. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it it, it, it needs to um, go a lot farther than it does. I, I find it surface, um, uh, you know, palatable. Mm-hmm. Could you give an example for one of those stories on how to go, how to go deeper, and how to kind of take a social justice perspective? Unless (laughs) you're not hearing the whole, you're hearing pieces, right? Well,
4: of course, you're not hearing the whole story. What about the summer camp with the incarcerated
2: fathers?
4: There was a social justice element to that story, and not that we're in the business of social justice. I, but. um, Well, in the back.
12: Yeah, I just. In partial agreement to what you said, but also slight disagreement. Um, <laughs> I, uh, like, as a young person and a millennial, I find that perhaps um, one of the problems that I have with radio is that there's a lot of focus, and just media in general, there's a lot of focus on like, what do millennials think? Like, yeah. what's with their yeah. infernal selfie taking? you like, all of this <laughs> stuff, and that, that's fine and that's great. But I don't. I think one of the reasons people are like young people of color is cause lots of Millennials take on cultures that aren't necessarily their own and um, use that. Like hip hop is a culture that people are like wow like hip hop's gross but once Miley Cyrus is twerking like everybody's doing it. So I don't feel like there's an exact, I wish public media was more critical of that aspect of things. Like I don't think public media, public media focuses a lot on Millennials and young people of color but it doesn't focus on like why it's focusing on them like it's focusing on them because everybody wants to be like like that's sort of the way that culture has been acting like you need to be miley cyrus like in all the fashion shows i see people are using like baby weave hair and like doing lots of stuff that are is not it's not the culture that fashion has been like about predominantly and i think that that might be one of the reasons why there's a lot of focus on millennials and young people of color and millennials maybe people should focus stories on like what's happening with your culture. Who's taking your culture? Yeah, I and mean, we is, do that on the blog.
4: Of I think we really do that successfully on the code Switch
12: blog. It sounded like you guys did a good job, but Yeah, I, I have no uh,
4: The radio is a little bit different. I mean, we it, the constraints that are put, placed upon us by the news magazines, it, it's, a, it's a lot harder to uh, please all of the producers who have been used to doing things one way for a very, very long time. So we want to get to that. We wanna to get to the deeper stories and we wanna provide more context and we wanna do all of those things and we're fairly new and we're, we're, we're trying things out and we're throwing spaghetti at the walls and I really do appreciate your criticism, I do. And I'm gonna take it back to the team and we're gonna talk, we will talk about that because you know we wanna do these stories right and we also wanna make them entertaining and not earnest. We want people to listen. So go ahead.
3: Um, It seems like Code Switch
5: gives a lot of thought to the conversation that happens after a piece airs, or like after you publish something. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy around that, and like engaging with a piece after the reaction comes out?
4: Well, we do a lot of social engagement because one of our missions is to engage younger communities and younger communities of color. That is one of our missions. And the way to do that is through social media and through the conversation that a little two and a half minute piece can spark online. It um, makes our content Last and it also helps our content reach audiences that are not going to hear it on the public radio stations. For example, the Axe Ask, there was a much bigger build online and there was a huge back and forth that happened in the comments section as well as on Twitter. Um, And we do that on purpose because, you know, on radio it doesn't live very long and people aren't really clicking on audio on our website. So it's a part of um, how we extend what we do, and it's actually probably one of the most successful parts of what we do, is the social media engagement. So, Twitter, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay.
0: Oh my gosh! Um, go ahead. Um, when we're reporting on stories about communities of color, and you're working with people that might not speak English, have you had to come up with creative ways to, I guess, include those voices? I wanted
4: to say, don't be afraid. I had written this down actually, don't be afraid when someone doesn't speak English. You know, it's um we have done that and we I speak Spanish and I use my horrible Spanish all the time out in the field and um Hansi speaks Mandarin and so within our group we have people who speak various other languages but we use interpreters and we don't shy away from stories where people are not speaking English we use it we are creative with the sound and um we have, we have to talk to people who don't speak English, so we're doing that. It doesn't make a, a producer super happy, um, but we're trying to figure out ways to use other languages without having, like, the weird voice on top of it, translating it. And <laughs> We're trying to, like, figure out creative ways to write in and out of different languages, and we've been experimenting with that, but we're not shying away from it, and we're going there. Go
6: ahead. Oh, I'm sorry.
7: Uh,
6: maybe To, no, I, yeah, no, okay. to, to address like, one of the concerns up front is what is also like disturbing to me about some of the stories from Code Switch, some of the quote-unquote diversity or race stories, is that whiteness is at the center of a lot of them. And I mean, hold, not that this room looks great, but like, hold a mirror up to this conference, yeah. and it really gets yeah. into the systemic issues of who is making decisions, who gets to make editorial decisions. and. This is a challenge of like you know when we keep saying diversity at third coast to me that's code for not white because when we look at this crowd it is white it's a white cultural supremacy of what everybody's talking about those are the cultural references people make those are the analogies that they make and like that that moscato story like made me shake when I first heard it on the air because it was it's um, I mean people were laughing in this room there's something really Condescending in the framing of the Moscato story. That it's funny that, like, oh, now black people are drinking wine only because rappers are talking about it. And it was like, that was like one, I love Code Switch, but that I was like, no, like, odd. That story got a lot of heat. There was a lot of heat on that. Because it's, right. I mean, mm-hmm. as it sounds, going you know, what you were saying, Lo, like, it sounds like a white man explaining He's black. to me. <laughs> I know, but exactly, like, the sound thing of, like, that NPR yeah, yeah, sound yeah. sounds like. A white man explaining how like who Lil Kim is and what Moscato is and you're just like I, I think that, <laughs> that yeah, that story it's was... that, that that like white explorer coming back and that to me is what's really frustrating about a lot of conversations about diversity. It's yeah. diversity from a white perspective. And people really need to challenge that.
1: But I, I think that if you're, if you're the, like, so Sam, who, who did it in the Moscato story, I mean, part of the problem is like you have, I mean, the, the guy who's the ex- wine expert who's in it is like one of my best friends, who went to college together. And um, so that's how Sam got the guy. And I feel like um, what's, what's funny about it is um, you are going to a white editor yeah. talking about these things.
6: And they're telling you, think of the audience.
1: And, and yes, and people, yes, and they say things like, like are, I've, I've had people say things like in rooms where you like, you know, everyone goes to the Cape. Uh, <laughs> you
7: know, like,
1: I've, I've been to the Cape and I've been to Boston, and like, no, everyone doesn't. <laughs> but that's, but that's, the, that's the sort of, I mean, and to, to also be fair to Sam, he's a relatively young reporter. Oh so, yeah, I'm not. No, I mean, no, no. But, but I mean, like yeah. when you when you are older or more, like I might like I might push back on an editor more or be like have more confidence. Mm. And, but that is, I mean, it's a problem for young reporters in these big
8: giant institution Like who do
4: you But the thing about the Moscato story that was really good is it opened up this exact conversation. It really did. Were you guys aware uh-huh. of that
6: when you put it out or like was that had that challenge come up in your conversations? He you was now? not edited yeah. by a code switch editor. Okay. Yeah. Number 1. Yeah. So um so we
4: we didn't know that there was going to be so much vitriol around it and I think it was because He's, he's African-American and he's young, and it, I think we, we just had no idea. It got picked up by Gawker, and it was like, NPR, you know. I'm actually really glad I used this story as an example because it did open up a conversation that we need to have. And if we, if there's one way, yes, we could have been much more politically correct about it, and he could have done it in a different way, and he probably should have done the story in a different way. But the good thing about this story is it did open up a conversation about how we tell stories at NPR and what we're doing wrong.
6: Well, I don't think it's politically correct.
4: Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was is, that,
6: is that what you meant? Or is it like I
4: mean... <laughs> well, I asked Sam. So when I, when I when I decided to play his story, I asked him, would you have done it any differently? And his answer was no. He wouldn't have. And he... And he had to deal with all the Twitter vitriol and he heard the conversation and he didn't think what he did was wrong. He didn't think that the way he approached the story was bad and he had all confidence in his story. And I said, well, you know, a lot of the audience doesn't agree with that. But if that's you wouldn't do anything differently, and he said, no, I wouldn't do anything differently. Nothing. So. uh, I don't know. Sometimes we fail. I don't, I, you know. Oh, I mean, I, no, no, I'm not I'm not <laughs> meaning to
6: put you on the defense. But. Oh,
4: no, no. I'm glad you said that because it's true. It's like this is what we have to go through every day. This is what I have to go through to get a story on air. I I have to talk to producers who, I mean, I ended a story with like some slang term that I think everyone knew. I don't know what it was. But my the producer was like, I've never heard of that in my life. And, I you know, I have to change my stories all the time to sort of feel fit into what works. But I think for me right now, it's important that we have these within the public radio news magazines. It's, you know, we can't, it can't be completely revolutionary immediately. We're sort of, it's like slowly trying to change the system, trying to move this gigantic boat very, very, very slowly. And it is painful and it's been really hard.
2: At what point do you think that you can push back and say, our job is not to translate, you know, like, we're just going to put culture out there, because I think that's part of the issue, is that it's like, oh, we're like, we're, you know, you say, like, think of the audience, it's like, no, not the point, we just want to put culture out there, and I think that's part of the problem, and I'm talking about this translation in a broad sense. I
4: think you have to do both. You have to, give some, the, you have to give the audience that you're talking about something and put it out there, and you also have to translate it for people who listen who have no idea what this is. I mean, we, you have to find the balance, and we've been trying to look for that balance in three and a half minutes or whatever, four minutes. Go ahead.
7: Um,
9: earlier I was going to say to you, why don't you just go do a podcast and do yeah. it the way you want? But now... I think I've changed my mind. And I think <laughs> that you all should stay and go into because the only, as a white editor, yeah. we need people who will push back, like Sonari says, and who will know things that other people don't know. And it's not going to happen unless people go through what you're going through and keep on pushing. So it, it, in our world now, you've could more easily go do your podcast and say I'm going to do it just the way I want but I hope you stay (laughs) because uh, you know and and Luis you too I I just feel like we need this so
4: in the back hat
9: Hi um so I had like three things one low to your point about not being able to de- determine the race of the person on the radio there's actually some way in which I think that's a really good thing because it takes away those pre those stereotypes we have when we hear somebody's story and we think oh they must look like this I mean TV definitely I think, can catch us in cycles of thinking about people just looking a certain way, and radio sort of lifts the veil on that, which I think can actually be used in a way of diversifying what we're hearing and experiencing because we're not putting a presupposed notion about the color of someone's skin. Their voice is really a pure way to get at them, Mm -hmm. so I think that can be powerful. Two, to the social uh, justice comment. um, Well, I think social justice stories are incredibly important, and as you said, Mass incarceration is one of the most important and underreported because of the exact reasons you were talking about, issues in this country. At the same time, wanting all race stories to be social justice stories is a really dangerous draft to fall into, and that is very much the white savior complex. And three, I think the diversity in newsrooms is exactly about this. You're not going to step outside of the, of, of, of white editors or older editors, you're going to be pushing back against them. It's about experiencing d- things differently and opening up that conversation in the newsroom and with the people who listen to the story. And if some things provoke outrage, I think that's great. We're in a moment where race issues do provoke outrage on both sides, but at least we're having the damn conversation.
4: Punto! As Piri Tomas would say. Rest in peace. Um, yeah. And... Oh, go ahead. I like you guys talking. This is great.
9: The back represents yes. that. So I just wanted to follow up on that. What happens when a story does provoke outrage? What goes on inside the minds of NPR, reaction-wise?
4: We at Code Switch... <laughs> what goes on inside the minds of NPR? <laughs> if I only knew. Um, we actually have a mechanism at Code Switch to deal with comments and outrage... Uh, Gene Demby, he's our lead blogger and correspondent. We put all these stories on our own blog. And so when we direct people to comment and have it out, hash it out on the blog, and he engages with our commenters and um, the community who wants to talk about it. And NPR actually has been kind of let them deal with it over there. That's how it's been so far. I mean, we haven't. We haven't had a, like, let's not have another story like that on air, yet.
9: Um,
2: do you feel like the discussion trickles up towards
9: people who make the big decisions, rather than just, you know, let's let the blog deal with it?
4: What do you think, Mari? Um Well,
1: who's making the decisions? Well, there's a lot of question marks. But, um, <laughs> but uh, because a lot of the work that gets done um, isn't like very high, right? It's not like you know you have to go to like, like we're the worker bees, and like there's like a layer above us, so there's not a lot like right right now. There's not a lot of people who really have in this weird because it's NPR and it's weird, but it's like there's not a lot of people who are who are holding the reins. So there is some. It's like a it's a weird moment now because there's some <laughs> ideas that are that can slip through, and there's. But I feel like the. I feel like
4: we're flying under yeah, the radar. Yeah. Um, I do, and we're, 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 we're in a moment where we're new enough that we can experiment and try things and people haven't decided they're gonna stop giving to their local public radio station because they heard a story about whatever it was. Go ahead.
12: Oh, I just had a quick question um, for people. I'm, I'm relatively young, so pushing back against my editors can often seem weird. Um, and I just did a piece on Gamergate, uh, yeah. and being like a black, young, queer person in a world full of mostly what feels like white guys who call themselves, like, nappy nigg hair online.
7: Mm-hmm.
12: And my editor from, like, not in news radio, from outside to where we're pitching to, was like, I don't think these people are like, why would white people use the word, like, the N-word online? And like, they said that I couldn't say that it was mostly white kids, because, and I felt like pushing back to that, but I wasn't sure, 10. like, well, it was, and, you know, and, and I wanted, I mean, the story needs to get out, so I feel like the story should get out, but I'm never yeah. quite sure if I'm supposed to, like, because I just, I'm, I'm 19, so it's like, fight back against the editing world? No, like, just, Give them your stories, so you can go home. And like youth radio, I feel like a lot of my editors are like, you can fight these things, but I'm like concerned.
4: But at the same time, while I do youth radio, speaking, you know, like I think the problem is also youth radio is a small nonprofit, right? So how do you push back when also, well, maybe they're not after all, right? Mm-hmm. Because they can't. They've dropped stories before, and not just that, like in general, right? So how do you push back like that, right? Um, I think it's important to push back, but there's also those kind of power dynamics that are at play between the people who do the work on the ground and then the people who are actually deciding to air the things, right? Yes. This is a constant struggle, and it's... I'm struggling with this every single day. I've actually... I'm combative, and... I mean, that's what people have told me, and I wear that label with pride. Um, And I think we just have to not give up and just keep fighting back. But it is exhausting. Yes?
12: I feel like, uh, to the point that you're making in the corner, that, uh, I mean, I'm an editor, I don't work for NPR, but I think that there's kind of an us versus them mentality between reporters and editors being kind of brought up here. And I don't necessarily think that there's a whole big divide right in the middle. I believe that a lot of editors, you know, whether they're white or old or whatever, <laughs> probably want to get the right stories out there, You know, to get the important stories out there, the ones that make the most difference. And so it is working together. They want the pushback. I think a lot of them. I mean,
3: certainly yeah, certainly
12: some of them will not. The yeah, but I mean, if you're, if you're doing a story for somebody, and you push back because you believe it's the right thing, and they say, no, forget, it, I'm not going to air it. Well, you don't want to do work for them anyway, I think.
7: K. L.
9: W. I'm okay, just... Yeah, I'm um, well, the, right,
12: the editors are also reporters, so like, the line is blurred. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. But, I, I mean, do you find that in PR, That no, we can't
4: push back? No, like, you know. That they want pushback. They right. want the best story and they want pushback. I think it depends on the editor. But, yeah, the good editors do want the push back and, and embrace it. And I've never been scared to push back, but... I, yeah, it's, it is all about telling the best story. But the, the thing is, is this is a diversity in the newsroom conversation. We need to diversify the people who are the gatekeepers and who are putting, allowing these stories to be put on the air. I mean, this is an old conversation that we've been having forever, um, and it, and is really an important conversation to be having here again. You know, and keep bringing it up um, because if we are going to serve the public, and that's our mission. Uh, we've we've got to look different. This conference has to look different, and you know, let's call it le- what it is. You, we can. There's only so many stories that we can do. One story that airs in an hour-long program um, that's going to make a change. We need to make a a real change in who who are the decision makers, and they can't all come from Ivy League colleges, and they can't all come from the coast, and they can't all be one type of person, you know, they have to be And they can't safe. all come
7: so, from NPR. No, they um, can't. I mean, I think that, that that's part of this conversation as well, is that um, you know, you have a national forum in that um, uh, network, and then, but, but there are lots and lots of, of stations, and there are lots of other areas in which um, there are affiliates. Um, for instance, HBCUs are MPR, many have NPR affiliations, mm-hmm. and yet they are treated like this huh, redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. That there's this um, uh, there there's a lack of engagement when there's already these relationships that could, could actually be existing in that you know in, in, in certain communities, and there's also the, the whole notion that any of these communities that you're talking about are monolithic.
4: Oh, work! And I agree with and, that completely. I mean, it's very complicated.
7: So that, that translator role, you know, get, that gets overplayed. But um, but within communities, there are opportunities to do the kinds of things that we're talking about right here. But it doesn't necessarily have to be up to NPR to to you know be the apex of that work.
2: It is really interesting. I you know I know they tend to sort of parachute reporters in, and they were covering the 2008 elections. I think in New Mexico, and the whole question was like, will Latinos vote for Obama? And you know, they don't, I don't, I'm not full-time at the station, but they don't tell anyone when they're coming in.
7: <laughs>
2: I would if I wanted to find out about my local community. I'm there for like three days. I would go mm-hmm. talk to the local <laughs> community <local> partners. <laughs> so they did the story, and they totally missed a huge breaking thing. Like the head of the Republican Party in Bernalillo County, which is the most populous county in the state, I think the BBC interview, he actually said, Um, you know, we're conquerors. We don't vote for slaves from the conquistadors. NPR totally missed that. They were doing that whole story about whether Latinos would vote for them. I was like, we well, probably should have talked to some local media if you're coming into a place I that's as that. different from the rest of the country in some ways as New Mexico.
4: I agree with that. And props to Code Switch, because when we went to Ferguson, we talked to the St. Louis reporters on the ground before we went there, and um, it was really important to work with the local station. And then afterwards, we met with the local station um, and checked in with them and asked them about the reporting they're doing. They asked us questions about how they can do race reporting better. Yeah, so Code, we're trying. We're trying. Props to Sonari Glinton in the house. (laughs) Um, What else? We've gone, uh, yes?
2: um, I have a question about the economics of this. Um, I think somebody was mentioning um, translating, there's this idea that um, black and Latino culture has to be translated for a white audience, but no one's doing the translating to a black and Latino audience. Um, And there's an assumption of who is listening and who's donating. Um and I just I don't is this I'm just really curious about like where where does this like economic part of it come in like when we're thinking about pledge drives and like who is the audience that gives money? And it seems like perceived that the audience that gives money is this group of like old white people. And I don't know if that's true, A, eh? and I don't know like what is the way around that if that is like the economic base. Where does that play in you know, all
4: this? I think that <laughs> should I even t- um Go ahead, Samar. Well,
1: one, one of the things um, we know is that actually, for instance, like Latinos, African-Americans are, are, ter- are actually turned off by, are more likely to be turned off by, say, an all-white thing, whereas white people are much more open. This is from just the world of consumerism. Like, if you, you put a black guy in a suit White guys will look at the suit and be like, "Oh, I'll buy that." But you put a white guy in a suit, black guys are like, "Oh, that's that suit's obviously not for me." I mean, that's like, that that is a like we 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 know that because there's a bit of exploration that people are willing are, are willing to do. So that's like that's one of the things about the translating, which I think that that's an that's an economic story that hasn't gotten to editors. That you know, if you if you want like that that if you want to get black and brown people like, black and brown people and white people and, like, the whole groups, so you have to have more of, uh, brown people. This is, like, you notice this in ads, you notice this in, you know, like, by the gays and lesbians and ads and things like that, and that's, like, a message that not, that hasn't gotten to, like, the journalism world.
4: KPCC has done it well.
1: Yeah, and they, they, <laughs>
4: <laughs> I forgot you guys were back there. Yeah. KPCC has really tried to reach out to the Latino community and Latinos are donating to the station and listening to the station in way greater numbers. It, they they have a Latino host of one of their news programs. Um, he speaks Spanish. He talks about Latino issues all the time. And they're... People who have donated to the station have changed, and the demographics of who are, who are listening has changed. Am I
9: right? Yeah, you are. Yeah. And one of the things to point out is that, I mean, ever, as, an editor, I could, as an editor, I can say, um, when reporters complain about the editing staff being white, apply for editing jobs. because I'm hiring right now and I can tell you I get a lot of guys and a lot of whites and I don't get a lot of diversity in the pool so it's really nice to have a microphone but it's also really nice to be in a position to shape coverage and if that's what you want to do you got to be an editor sorry
6: yes this is
4: so good Uh, time is up so thank you I appreciate it louder louder (laughs) Thank you very
9: much.
3: Thank you. Thank you for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. And a special thanks to Shelley Steffens, who recorded and mixed all of the presentations from the 2016 conference. We'll be back soon with more sessions. But until then, you can always check out our archive of conference audio at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or you can have a listen to our other podcast, ReSound, for the best audio stories from around the world. All right. Speak soon. Bye.
11: Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love... My Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the Pineapple Mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.
12: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.